so this is reminding me of, uh, if you look at the old books about people who are discerning whether they should be a pastor or not, and they have a list of, of things you should pray about and qualifications about whether you should be a preacher. And what you don't find in the modern books that you find in the more ancient books is them talking about your lungs and your power and ability to preach. And if you go back a century and prior, this was one of the marks that determined whether you were called to be a preacher or not. So think of the size of group, uh, group that we have here. And then multiply this by some congregations having a thousand people in them. Now they're in a building with architecture that's designed for a voice to travel, but you need a voice that will travel to a thousand people potentially in a large sanctuary. This is kind of interesting how, how things change. I mean, that's not something that we think about today as a preacher, that you need to have a booming voice that will carry to people in the hinterland. So I'm just thinking about that this morning. Are, are you glad I'm sharing this with you? I, I, everybody was wondering what I'm going to do here. Uh, so we, uh, we are in a journey on Mark's gospel, through Mark's gospel. As a church family, we have been going through Mark's gospel now for nearly a year. We have taken a couple breaks from the gospel of Mark. We've taken a break to celebrate and hear from God's word about the birth of Christ. And we've taken a break uh, to hear from God's word and to celebrate about the death of Christ and last week, the resurrection of Christ. And I'm glad the power was not out last week because it would be a lot more crowded in here. I wouldn't have to ask you to huddle together. You would have been forced to be uh, huddling together. So, So we're thankful that the power was not out last week. So we have been on this journey. We've taken a break and now we're getting back into the gospel of Mark today. And I want to, as it were, kind of set the stage, establish your memories, and and remind you of where we have been as we pick up today in chapter 9, the passage that Jim just read. And where we have been, if you remember weeks back to the last message on the Gospel of Mark, is we were on a mountaintop, literally. We don't know the name of the mountain, but we refer to it as the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus had chosen Peter, James, and John to come with him up on this mountaintop. And it is a high point in their lives. It is a high point in the gospel. It is a mountaintop experience. In my Bible, the way this translation renders this expression of what happened there, it's it's just a crazy way to describe it. Let me find it here. It says, uh, his clothes, Jesus' clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. That's the description as Peter, James, and John are with Jesus up on this mountaintop. And what has happened is that Jesus has been transformed. He has yet to die and be resurrected and have his glorified body, but this is how he is appearing to them on this mountain in this transfigured, glorified, transformed state. And you remember what Peter said? Anybody remember what he said? We we want some feedback here today. He he said, let's set up some tents. This is cool. Let's stay right here. Let's, let's, this is the way things ought to have been. I think words were not sufficient to describe the beauty and the glory that they saw in Christ in this, in this vision. It was a glimpse of glory and a glimpse of heaven. Now, those of us uh, who've 
lived any more than maybe five or six years in life, we know what often follows mountaintop experiences. We know what often follows the summer camp or the retreat experience or the beautiful vacation that you have where there's just joy and happiness and, and there's just this incredible time. What often happens after that? You, you, you take a dive, right? You, you, there's sometimes discouragement. There's sometimes depression. There's sometimes a dive. So that's what, where we're headed today, setting the stage in Mark's gospel. They've been up on the mountaintop, and just like what often happens in our lives, the disciples are going to be taking a dive. This reminds me of my own family that many of you know for years. Uh, I married into this large extended family, and we go away every year for a thing called Cousins Camp. And it's just one of those mountaintop experiences. We're all together. We go to the beach every day. We have this wonderful meal at at night. There's about 50 of us camping at my father-in-law's home. That's how we've been doing it in recent years, 40, 50 of us. And I've learned about three, four, five years ago, I learned this, that it is just too hard a transformation to go from that community kind of living straight back to our house because my wife and everybody, we just crash. There's this depression and there's this discouragement. And so... So we have to have like a mini vacation, like two or three days for our family where we kind of wind down and take a step down before we come home. I, this, this is what we generally do now. Well, all this is, is set up for where we are today. The disciples and Jesus are coming off of the mountaintop, three of the disciples, and we come to today's passage. Let's take a look at it together. Uh, I'm going to begin looking at verses 14 and following. So Mark chapter 9 and verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, the they here is Jesus, James, John, and Peter. They've come down off the Mount of Transfiguration. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. So, I mean, they've gone from this great glorious experience to arguing going on. Verse 15, as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. Now, in verse 15 here, the NIV translates this, overwhelmed with wonder. This is really strong language here. Uh, and so some people think that Jesus may have some lingering glory going on that, that is distinguishing him from what he looked like previously. We're not sure, uh, you know, I, it's not really clear if that's the case or not, or perhaps more likely, Jesus has developed this incredible reputation of healing, of casting out demons, of feeding thousands of people. But for whatever reason, uh, the, the people are overwhelmed with wonder and they ran, run to greet Jesus in the midst of this argument that's going on. So then Jesus asked this question in verse 16, what are you arguing with them about? Now, when Jesus asks a question, he's generally not looking for an answer or for information. When Jesus asks a question, he's often setting up about what is, is, is about to happen. He, he, he's not really looking for help or information. So he asks this question, what are you arguing with them about? And here's the setting that comes out of that question. There, there isn't any answer to that question, but what happens, look at verse 17. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son, my son. And and so we should enter in here to this love and passion that this father has for his son. We know from Luke's gospel, this is his only child. Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. 
Verse 18, whenever it seizes him, it throws him on the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. They could not. Now, at this point, the reader of Mark's gospel should be surprised because the disciples, the 12, have been empowered by Jesus to cast out demons and to do healings. And this is what they have been doing. I would show it to you up on the screen, but I don't have the screen. So let me just read to you what should be coming to our minds from Mark chapter 6 and verse 13. It says, They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So the disciples have been cruising along, and they have been healing, and they have been casting out demons. Now this mountaintop experience, the three disciples and Jesus come down, and there's this argument And there is this news that they haven't been able to cast out the demon of the son of this man. So the reader should be asking, why is this? What is going on here? Jesus has given them power. One uh, commentator writes this. He, He says, the disciples were previously successful in casting out demons. This is the only detailed account of the disciples failing to drive out an impure spirit suggesting a significant lapse in their spiritual authority. Since their authority was always dependent upon Jesus, this spiritual failure implies that their relationship with him has been seriously compromised. The relationship of Jesus and the disciples at this point has become seriously compromised. And the reader, us, of Mark's gospel should be asking, what is the nature of this compromise? And And those of us who want to apply the word of God to ourselves should also be asking ourselves, am I like this in any way? Is is this lack of the ability of the Holy Spirit to be present in our lives, is there anything for me to to learn from this? And the answer is yes. Now, obviously, you and I are not apostles. Our main ministry, for most of us, you can talk to me afterward if this is your main ministry, but most of us, our main ministry is not casting out demons and healing the sick in the way that the disciples were and the way that Jesus was. But we are also called to rely upon the Holy Spirit and things can get in, our, in the way of our relationship with him to where we are seriously compromised and we are not able to live our lives with, with durable joy and with the abundance of of confidence that comes from faith in Jesus. This is the situation that we have going on here. So back to our text. So let's see, where, where am I? Um, where did I leave off? I'm at 19. Thank you, sir. So back to verse 19. So this, this man, this father says, uh, they, your disciples weren't able to drive out this demon. So verse 19, oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. I love that last sentence. You know, we've seen this time and time again as we've journeyed through Mark's gospel where Jesus literally just sighs. And he's just sighing here. Things on the earth are not the way they should be. Things in the lives of my disciples are not the way they should be. Things in this man's family with his only child doing the things that, it, that are, this child is, is doing through demon possession. Things are not the way they should be. But I love this last sentence. I love this last sentence. 
where he says, bring the boy to me. In a sense, this is what Jesus is saying to us today. Our lives are sometimes a mess. Our children are a mess. Our own lives are a mess. And Jesus is saying, come to me. Bring the boy to me. I am sufficient to care for all things. Bring the boy to me. One, uh, one commentator on, on that, uh, this whole scene here, writes this. There's some, some biblical theology here. One commentator writes, Jesus' descent from the glory on the mountain to find an unbelieving generation defeated by an impure spirit recalls what? Recalls Moses' descent to find Israel's apostasy. Exodus chapter 32. Until the disciples fully embrace the way of the cross, and we're going to get to that more in a moment, but this is part of why they are stumbling. Until the disciples fully embrace the way of the cross, their spiritual impurity will render them powerless. Powerless. So back to our text. All right, where was I? 20. Yeah, you're with me. Okay, so uh, Jesus is sighing. How long am I going to be with this generation? Verse 20. So they brought him. When the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood. I mean, can you imagine your only child is possessed by a demon like this, foaming at the mouth? Verse 22, the father says, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now notice especially here in verse 22 where the father says, if you can do anything, there is doubt. We hit this same theme last week. There is doubt in this father. Why is there doubt in the father about Jesus' ability? Because Jesus' ability has been transferred to his disciples and his disciples up until this point have been effective in healing and casting out demons. But now they haven't been, and so this father's just saying, you know, Jesus might not be able to either, so if you can do anything, help us. If you can do anything, help us. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed. I'm sorry, I left that. Verse, yeah, verse 23. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Jesus turns this around. The father is full of doubt in Jesus' ability has some degree of doubt in Jesus' ability. And then Jesus corrects him in verse 23 with this, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes. So the problem is not with Jesus. The problem is with the father doubting Jesus' ability to cast this demon out of his son. Jesus has turned the situation around. I love the father's response. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. This is such a precious prayer. This should be the prayer of all of us regularly when we are struggling to trust God, whether we're doubting him in the big scheme of things or whether we're doubting him, not his existence or his resurrection, but we're doubting his ability to see me through this next thing in life. I believe, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. So we see all through verse 24, we see that they're the disciples that Christians regularly fail 
in representing Christ. This is my first point today, coming out of the disciples' the disciples' failure to carry out the ministry that Jesus has commissioned them for. Point number one, though Christians regularly fail in representing Christ, there is no excuse for unbelief. Though you and I, though the apostles, fail in representing Christ, this is no excuse for unbelief. But isn't this one of the most common excuses for unbelief? How many of you, if not yourselves, no friends, no others, who have had some terrible experience with Christians, and that terrible experience has kept them from trusting Christ. Anybody, anybody familiar? I mean, probably all of us know someone in this situation. So this passage is screaming out that even when followers of Christ are deficient in some way, that Christ is not. Is that good news? It is good news. He is not deficient. You and I are, the apostles are, but Christ is always sufficient. He is full of power, he is full of grace, he is full of mercy, and he is worthy for us to follow no matter what is going on, no matter what kind of failures we see in the lives of believers around us. One person who came to a crisis point in his life who was looking for the answer to life was a uh, a famous writer, many of you know, uh, Tolstoy, Leo Tolstoy. Familiar with this guy? I got a picture of him here if you want to see it. Um, You can come on up uh, if you want. It's uh, it's actually, I I pulled this uh, off the the internet, and he uh, he lived from 1828 to 1910. And when I first saw this picture, it was this color photo uh, from 1908. Some of you in here can, can see this here. It was the First color photo ever taken in Russia, 1908, color, color photo. You in the sun in the cheap seats, you probably can't see this uh, over here. Um, anyway, Tolstoy was born into this elite culture. He, he was uh, of uh, the, the, the upper class, born with a silver spoon in his mouth, and gifted one of uh, the greatest writers in history. Uh, he's written uh, War and Peace, uh, Anna Karenia, a uh, couple of his, his famous books. Anybody read, read these things? A couple of you? Uh, you can raise your hands. Now, you know from last week that I haven't read War and Peace, right? Those of you that are here last week. How long is that puppy? That thing is like, I can't even count that high. So I have not read War and Peace. But here's why I'm ta- talking about Tolstoy. Tolstoy gets to a point, after he published... Um, Anna Karenia, he was uh, just, you know, all this money, all this fame, uh, part of the elite circles in Russia. And, and where do you think he would be with, with all of this stuff, all of the pleasures of life, all the wealth, all the stuff, where is he at? At about age 50, he's near suicide. Let me read to you what he writes in his little short book that he wrote. Guess what? I've read this one. It's called A Confession It's not a novel. It's his own story, if you will. He writes this. He says, My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man, from the foolish child to the wisest elder. Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? 
He's having this crisis at age 50. He's suicidal. In fact, as you read more, it's not that fun to read, but as you read his confession, he's struggling with himself because he's feeling like he's not courageous enough to go through with suicide. So he's getting harsh on himself because he thinks that's actually what I should be doing. And so before he does that, he decides, I'm going to do a final search, and I'm going to search and see what meaning there is beyond, if I can find something beyond this this crazy elitist life he's been living. And so he decides to look at the few Christians that he knows within his sphere of influence in the upper echelons of Russian culture and society. And guess what he saw? He saw something like this father saw. He saw Christ's followers not living up to something that is exemplary, not doing what they were called to do. So he, he, he decides to investigate by looking at the few lives of believers that he knows in this upper echelon of society, the elitist culture he's in. This is what he writes. He says, I was repulsed by the fact that these people's lives were like my own. His life was miserable. With, with only this difference, here's the one difference, that such a life did not correspond to the principles they expounded in their teachings. So these elite Christians that he's getting to know, they're just as miserable as I am. The only difference is that they are hypocrites because they're not loving their neighbors. They're not living with joy. They don't seem to have meaning in life. That's the only difference between them and me. And so he moves on. He doesn't get to suicide, thankfully. He decides... Uh, Well, let me read one other thing he says about those folks, about those elitist believers that he's trying to spend time with and find, is this real? Is Christ real? Is there meaning beyond this empty life that he's experienced up to this point? He, He writes this, he says, but they, these believers of our circle, just like myself, living in sufficiency and superfluity, try to increase or preserve them. In other words, they're just trying to hang on to all the goods and money and all the privileges that we have. They feared privations, suffering, and death. And just like myself and all of us unbelievers lived to satisfy their desires and lived just as badly, if not worse, than the unbelievers. So the followers of Christ that he is looking to are not helping him whatsoever. And so the transformation comes in his own life as he eventually journeys to find Christ. He journeys outside of his circle for the first time. And he goes to spend time with peasants and with common folk that someone in his day, in his culture, in his country would not associate with ordinarily. And this is what he says about that experience as he's going to now investigate Christ through believers in the low class, the peasants. He says this, I saw that the whole life of these people was passed in heavy labor and that they were content with life These people accepted illness and sorrow without any perplexity or opposition and with a quiet and firm conviction that all is good. So Tolstoy ends up finding Christ. He ends up getting in trouble because he basically sells all of his stuff. His wife was not happy. He decided God had called him to get rid of all of the stuff that we had. Now to make his wife happy, He uh, signed over the rights to his uh, books to her, so that kind of helped her out a little bit. But he, his life radically changed. The way that he lived radically changed. He found Christ. I'm bringing all of this up today for, for two reasons. Number one, 
it, it is not essential, as we see in this passage, it is not essential that we find the greatest examples of followers of Christ in order to trust Christ and know him. This is, this is the experience of this father in our passage today. But you and I, we want to be the kind of people whose lives point others to Jesus by the way that we live. We want to be not like those elitist people who, who profess Christ, but they're just as miserable as he was. We want to be people who have durable joy in our lives, people that have contentment, whether we have a comfortable life or whether we have a hard life like the peasants. We want to be people who are joyful not only for ourselves, but so that we point others to Christ. Are you with me? This is what we want. This is what we want. So this passage can help us to see what is it that might be keeping us from living that way so that our lives are indistinguishable. The the Christians in his circles, their lives were indistinguishable from the miserable people like himself that that he was hanging out with. So we're going to find some some more help as we work our way through this passage. So though Christians regularly fail in representing Christ, this is no excuse for unbelief, but you and I don't want to be people who fail in representing Christ. We want someone who's searching for God to see our lives and see our lives characterized by joy and by contentment. And we're going to see part of what's so imp- uh, part of how we go about that in these in these next few verses. Okay, so where am I? Back to our text. Am I going too long? I'm just I'm a little out of my kilter up here. You guys still tracking with me? Uh, we don't need to end this thing right now. Okay. All right. So here, let's keep going. Um, so I'm uh, so I'm at verse 25. Right? Is that where I am? All right. So back to our text, just a few more verses. We're going to go through verse 32. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. Jesus restores all things. His power is infinite. He's not like the failing disciples. He's not like you and me who fail in many different ways. He is worthy of trust, of confidence, of faith, and belief. Verse 28, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? So the disciples here ask the question that the reader of Mark's gospel should be asking too. Why couldn't they do this? They've been doing it all along. And he replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. This kind can come out only by prayer. So point number two this morning, I just have three of them. Point number two is that neither past spiritual effectiveness, that's what the disciples have had, neither past spiritual effectiveness nor God's calling, that these apostles have been called, is sufficient apart from prayer and an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And the intimate relationship with Jesus has broken down, and the careful reader of Mark's gospel should be asking, why and how has it broken down, and is my life like that at all? So, so he tells us this kind can only come out by prayer. Now, if you happen to have the King James or New King James Version, this passage says what? Anybody know what it, what it says? Fasting, right. So some of our, I don't want to get too off track here, but just very briefly, we have about 5,000 New Testament manuscripts. 
And a certain percentage of those manuscripts say this kind can only come out, reading the, New, uh, the King James Version, it says this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Now just really briefly to kind of let you know why this says this, what, what the, the consensus is, which I would agree with in what we call textual critical studies, is the early church fasting very important discipline, something that we've kind of gotten away from. You know, a very important discipline in the church today, spiritual discipline, is reading the Word of God and prayer, and it should be. But I would say fasting is not one of our uh, primary disciplines. Is that true? Maybe I'm clueless. If you're fasting all the time, come and talk to me afterward. I'd like to hear about that. But the early church, fasting was a major spiritual discipline. And so likely what happened is the copyists, the scribes who copied out the New Testament by hand, likely added this phrase and fasting to this original thing. The point here is not some technical detail. Jesus isn't saying, well, you didn't say the Lord's Prayer enough times, or you didn't fast from this, you didn't do that. That's why you couldn't cast out the demons. That's not the spirit of this passage. So textually, the right reading, I think, is that this kind only comes out by prayer But the main point here is that the intimate relationship of the disciples and Jesus has gone away. And that's gone away. The indicator is that has gone away by them not praying. Okay, so so the the reason they haven't been able to do this is, is only by prayer. But we still should be asking the question, why this failure at this particular moment? Why are they, why is their intimacy and their prayer life gone now? Why this failure at this particular moment? It's not because they weren't fasting. It's not because of some procedural thing. It's not because Jesus wants to withhold the healing. He sent them on this mission to heal and to cast out demons. That's not his desire here. It's not because the boy or his father's, uh, because of the boy or his father's sins. Other passages in the New Testament make it very clear that almost all the time. We should not draw a connection between physical illness or even demonic possession and our own sins. So, so what is going on here? I think we find the answer in, in this next section. Let's finish it up and look at verses, um, where am I now? I'm at 30, right? Okay. So this kind, he gives the answer, this kind can only come out by prayer. Verse 30, they left that place and passed through Galilee Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise again. But they did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it. This is the clue, I think, to understanding the spiritual distance between the apostles and Jesus, verse 32, and this second proclamation in Mark's gospel of the gospel itself. Now, this is the second time in Mark's gospel where Jesus tells the disciples that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, that he's going to be killed, and then after three days, he's going to rise. Now, in this situation, look at their response in verse 32. They don't understand it, they don't know what he meant, and they are afraid to ask him about it. They are full of fear. They don't want to accept the reality that their Messiah is going to suffer, that he's going to be killed. They reject this. Now, the first time that Jesus clearly prophesies or predicts his death and his suffering was back in chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Let me just read it briefly. 
It says, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You remember that? Peter rebukes Jesus when the first time he basically tells Peter what the gospel is. And now they're not rebuking Jesus, but they are denying it. They're not wanting to hear it. They're not wanting to ask him about it, and they're full of fear about it. So why they have lost the spiritual intimacy, why they are not praying, is because they are denying the gospel message that is coming to them. Now, we don't want to be too harsh. We probably would be too. We would have been expecting a Messiah who's going to reign in Jerusalem and make everything right and and rule and and, and take care of all the wickedness and all the people that are oppressed. They're going to lift them up. This is what they were expecting. They weren't expecting a Savior who was going to come as a sin substitute, as the Lamb of God, who was going to suffer this most hideous and scandalous and terrible death on a cross. That's not what they were expecting. But because of that denial, they have lost their spiritual intimacy with Jesus. So point number three, and my final point, we're going to be winding down now, is that a denial of the gospel leads to a loss of gospel power. A denial of the gospel or a denial of gospel themes leads to a loss of gospel power. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. They have lost gospel power because of their denial of the gospel or gospel themes. So, again, now application. How does this relate to us? Now, you might think, well, we don't deny Jesus' death and suffering. I mean, for 2,000 years, we have been, we, we, we have a day called Good Friday. We, we, I've never had someone in my office saying, I'm, I'm struggling with the reality that Jesus suffered and died on a cross. We don't tend to struggle with that. They are struggling with that. So as you and I read the New Testament, we ought not to read this and go, well, they struggle with this, and I don't, and so I'm okay, and so I'm just going to move on. Okay, we have to go deeper in applying God's word into our lives, and so we need to ask ourselves, what sort of gospel themes might I be denying in my own life that is hindering my spiritual intimacy and my prayer life with Christ, and so I'm not experiencing the power of gospel in my own life? So by gospel themes, I mean things like forgiveness. I mean things like repentance. I mean things like hope. So at this moment, I'm praying that that those of you who have been tracking with me so far, that right now you're thinking to yourself that the Holy Spirit is at work and is saying, what, what gospel themes in my life am I denying? And these are usually subtle denials if we've been around the church sometime. We're not, we're not like waking up in the morning saying, oh, I'm going to deny forgiveness. That's not what I'm saying. How many of us, if we want to go with forgiveness as just one of the gospel themes that we might be denying? And I don't know where you are at. This is the hard part about preaching. I don't know where you are, but the Holy Spirit does. But I've been around many believers who have anger, who have hatred toward, even hatred toward an ex-husband or wife, toward a father or mother that disappointed them or abused them, a family member, a, a neighbor. Not forgiveness, but, but anger, hatred, get away from me, I don't want to be with them, denial, don't bring this up. We 
can be like the disciples in very different ways where we are denying gospel themes in our lives. And at that point, we are going to look like, going back to Tolstoy, we are going to look like someone, these people have the same problems I do. Not characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. Not characterized by the power of the gospel. So a denial of the gospel leads to a loss of gospel power. So sticking with this theme of forgiveness for a moment as a way to apply today's passage in our lives because I'm saying most of us don't deny the suffering of Christ, the, the, the element of suffering to the gospel, we may deny other themes or elements of the gospel. Matthew 6, 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The way that the gospel works is there is this, this symbiotic relationship between us and the Lord. He has forgiven us while we are still sinners, and we are called to regularly be forgiving and living out forgiveness toward others. By the grace of God, we are forgiving those who have betrayed us, those who have gone against us, even those who have abused us, even those who have done the very worst things to us. As Christ has forgiven us, we forgive them. If we are not asking for God's help to live that out, we are basically in the same kind of situation as the disciples. And we are not going to be pointing other people to Jesus Christ. We are not going to be, be living with contentment. We're not going to be living with durable joy. We are going to be looking like, I don't want any part of this, as Tolstoy said when he looked at his elite uh, friends who also professed Christ. So, wrapping up here today, I want to read from uh, a quote from uh, a writer's name, Miroslav Volf. And he uh, lived through this, the, the war in um, Croatia, U- Yugoslavia, the whole, that whole thing. Um, he, he lives in America now. He's, um, he, he was then and is now a believer. But this man has learned a lot about forgiveness, being the only Christian in his high school over there, living through ethnic cleansing, living through these people, battling some of it religiously motivated, watching all of this stuff uh, go on. He writes this about forgiveness, and I'll close with this. He says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. You see that unconsciously, if we are not forgiving, we are excluding that person who has offended us from the community of humans. They are not worthy of the kind of forgiveness that I've received. And I've excluded myself from the community of sinners. He goes on, but no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion. We can't exclude others from forgiveness. We are called to forgive those just as Christ has forgiven us while we were still sinners. We are called to live out the gospel. And as we daily ask for grace to live out gospel themes, we're going to find contentment. We're going to find the power of the gospel in our lives, and we're going to end up being the kind of people who display lives that are glorious, that are contentment. Do we struggle? Yes. Do we sin? Yes. But there ought to be, by the grace of God, a massive difference in our lives, just as what, what Tolstoy saw in those peasants. I believe God wants others around us to see in you and me, and that they, like Tolstoy, will come to him. Let's bow our heads and pray and ask God to do that in us and through us.